we're going to be doing sermon number two out of 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, starting in verse 5. We'll read that in just a moment. But last week, uh, we made the point that loving other people um, oftentimes brings pain. Loving people can result in anguish, and sometimes that's because uh, maybe our love is rebuffed, and we give and we give and we give, and there's no reciprocation of that love that we've shown. We put everything in, and sometimes it is not met. But sometimes love is painful uh, because uh, love addresses things that are uncomfortable. Love doesn't ignore Sin, the danger of sin, love speaks up, love engages, love gets involved. And that's what we see happening today. In Luke chapter 10, the the story is told to us of the Good Samaritan. And this is the man who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves and they threw him on the side of the road and the, the priest came by, the Levite came by, ignored him, but the Samaritan stopped and bandaged his wounds, helped him to get to the next town. It's easy for us, I think, in life as Christians to apply that to people who've been injured by others, uh, to people who have gone through situations where they've lost their job. We would say it maybe like this, hey, they've just been beat up by life. Life's beaten them up and, and we want to come alongside and help. I think it's a little harder for us sometimes to love those who may be being beat up by sin, right? Life's not beating it up. It's not external things. It's their internal. We look at them, and sometimes our approach to people who are laying on the side of the road because they've been beat up by sin is one of judgment. Well, what do you expect? I warned you, or other people told you, and this is what happened. And sometimes that's our heart's response. It's something that they deserve. Sometimes it's indifference that we respond to those who are struggling with sin. Sometimes it's ignorance. We don't know what to do or what to say, and so we just move to the other side of the road and and don't say anything at all, hoping that maybe somebody else behind us will do something to help these individuals. But we do know what to do. What does love do? Love gets involved. Love engages. Love participates in what the Samaritan participated in. And that's what's going on to a degree here in 2 Corinthians 2 verse 5. Follow along with me if you would. Now if anyone has caused pain, he's caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. We're all in pain, in other words, Paul says. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. And so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. And so I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. And anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake and in the presence of Christ. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his schemes or his designs. Father, we thank you for your word. Help us now oh, to be honest. Help us now to reveal and confess the hiddenness that may dwell inside of us. Show us, we pray, Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. 
I want to begin uh, by talking a little bit about the rebel. Uh, We've mentioned several times that there were some inside the church at Corinth that were actively working against the Apostle Paul. Uh, We read of them in 1 Corinthians and in 2 Corinthians alike. But here in verse 5, Paul seems to narrow his opposition down to one individual. He kind of refers to him as this anyone or the one who, who is a thorn in Paul's side, but not just Paul's side, but he's been a thorn in the side of the whole of the church at Corinth. And so we have to ask the question, who's the anyone that Paul's referencing? Well, he doesn't give us his name. Paul knows his name. I guarantee you Paul knows his name. He prays for him regularly. But but in grace and humility, Paul isn't going to expose that. Paul isn't putting that in here for us. Everybody in Corinth knows who we're dealing with. Paul knows who we're dealing with. And so some throughout church history have equated this man with the man that's mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 who's caught in sexual sin and they're to remove him from the membership. I believe for for just some context reasons, we're dealing with a different person here, a different situation. The context suggests that the anyone here is the ringleader of the whole discredit Paul movement that's going on in Corinth. This is the guy who's dragging all of the people together, trying to discredit the apostle Paul, his reputation, We don't know exactly why, but he's leading this rebellious faction. It could be money. It could be a genuine doctrinal disagreement. It could be power that he is wanting. But whatever the case, verse 5, where Paul introduces him, gives way to verse 6. We move from past offense to present situation. In verse 6, Paul states the punishment by the majority is enough. It's enough. What punishment is he talking about and who is the majority? During his painful visit, which we talked about last week, and no doubt the painful letter that he wrote, Paul had confronted this opponent. And Paul had confronted the whole of the church for putting up with this opponent. And Paul had instructed them, you need to get this guy out of the church. He is a cancer and he is destroying things. He needs to be removed from the church, remove the rebel. And Paul would have in mind, no doubt, the discipline process that he had already described in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 in dealing with these other individuals who were in sexual sin and also which Jesus introduces to us in Matthew chapter 18. How do we handle rebellious people? Let me briefly summarize the points that are made between Paul and Jesus. Those living in habitual sin must be confronted, not ignored. I'm not talking about a a, a one-off sin where something happens, but when we see somebody who's trapped in sin, they're in habitual sin, we cannot ignore them. Jesus says when your brother sins against you, you go to him. You go to him. You don't ignore it. Paul's instruction is whenever uh, you observe sin in the life of a professing believer, you are to act. Galatians 6 says you are to restore. You're to restore that one with a spirit of meekness. That word restore is used in Greek terms, in medical language, of setting a broken bone. It means you're to go to them and make them useful to Christ again, to make them useful in the service of Christ. We're called to do this. You don't go in your own authority. You don't go and say, hey, you should stop doing that because I said so. You go with your Bible open and say, hey, here's what God's word says. Here's what Jesus says it means to follow him. And here's here's what you're doing. And I just want to plead with you, follow Jesus. Be obedient to Jesus. And then according to Jesus, space is to be given for them to acknowledge and repent. We want to be patient with people. We want to let the spirit of Christ do the work, not us. 
And if they refuse, and if they continue in their sin, and they continue to grind in their sin, instruction is given by Jesus to take another brother or sister along and offer another appeal. Open Bibles and prayer and grace and mercy, and you're, you're pleading with them to follow Christ. And, and the approach is not to, to shame a person. It's not to humiliate a person, to bring them into judgment, but to plead with them with someone who is blinded to their own sin. Please do something before it's too late. I think of a family particularly that um, I know back in Oklahoma that the, the mom had gotten COVID and this was early on. Everybody was still trying to figure everything out. She was already unhealthy and her, her family begged her to go to the hospital. And she, she didn't and she didn't. And she finally did. They, they finally made her go and it was, it was too late. And within a day she had died. That's the seriousness of what we're talking about here. Sin is killing people. And Jesus says, I'm in grace allowing you to see it and you need to go to them and you need to warn them and, and, and take others with you if they're not heeding your warning and you go to them and you plead with them before it is too late. Space is then given for them to acknowledge and repent and if they continue and they refuse to repent, the matter is to be brought before the church. The church is obligated to remove the persistent rebel from their fellowship. And let me, let me be very clear. I'm going to read this, what I wrote. This is what we're saying when we would remove a rebel from the membership. We accepted you into this fellowship based upon your profession of faith in Jesus. But now, by your own actions and choices, you are no longer professing Jesus. You're denying him. Therefore, you leave us with no other choice than to treat you as someone who does not believe in Jesus because your life isn't matching up with what we're called to follow. And we are a church that practices biblical and compassionate discipline. It's in our articles of faith. It's in our bylaws. It's in our history. We love you enough to remove you if you fall away from Jesus. And it's not because we don't want you here. Even if we remove you, we still want you to come. You're just not able to engage in all of the privileges that come with membership. But we do it because Jesus instructs us that, that by removing people, it becomes a tool that he uses. This is what Jesus says. It's a tool that I use to restore people and to bring people back into fellowship. And that tool is what the Corinthians had finally used. And as Jesus intended, it worked in this rebellious man's life. Can you imagine? This guy, this guy who's been a thorn in Paul's side for years, a thorn in the Corinthians' side, they, they remove him, and now he's come back. He's seeking forgiveness. And when Paul writes here that the majority had spoken, he's referencing the decision of the church to remove the man because his actions were not in line with that of a genuine follower of Christ. But here in verse 6, it seems clear he's repented and Paul knows it. And so he says, church, it's enough. It's enough. So what comes next? Forgiveness. Forgiveness comes after that. 
Paul instructs the Corinthians, now turn and forgive the man. And it seems they were having a bit of an issue with this. I don't know, has anybody else in this room ever had an issue forgiving of other people who have hurt us and injured us? Yeah, we get it, right? This guy had injured them for years and they're struggling now to act in forgiveness. And so let's talk about forgiveness for a moment. The word Paul uses here, it's kind of, it's root is that word charisma, that the gift. We talk about the, the charismatic, the gifts that are given to us, the grace that God shows. And so the word he uses carries this idea of giving, freely giving gifts to another person. Paul implicitly describes it, and I've never noticed this before. Think about this, for giveness. We're giving something. What are, we, what are we giving when we give forgiveness? We're giving grace. And we're giving mercy. It's an act of giving. It's, it's canceling the debt that is owed to us. This man had injured Paul. He had injured the Corinthians. He had injured Christ himself. He had spoken hurtful. He had spoken untruthful words. He had manipulated. And the instruction Paul gives is to forgive, cancel his debt, accept the man as if none of those things had ever happened. That's what Paul says. Forgiveness makes uh, four promises. I've always appreciated uh, Ken Sandy in his book, Peacemaker, lays out four promises that forgiveness makes. Anytime you say, well, I forgive you, these are the four promises you make. I will not let this incident hinder our relationship. I'm not going to let what happened stand in the way of our relationship. Number two, I'm not going to dwell on this incident. Why is that important? Oh, your mind works just like mine. We play it over and over and over. Forgiveness makes the promise. I'm not going to play this over and over on loop repeat in my mind. The third promise that it makes is I'm not going to talk to others about this incident. I'm not going to blab this. I'm not going to share this in a way of gossip. And the fourth one is I'm not going to bring this incident up and use it against you in the future. I'm not going to save this one for later and the next time throw it out there. So, so if you've ever been in that relationship where somebody says, hey, hey, I forgive you for what you did, but two years later they bring it back up again, that's not true forgiveness. That's not what we're talking about. The, the, world, the world has created many very convenient definitions of forgiveness for us. You know, for, forgiveness is just this, and, and you, you do these kinds of things. But the follower of Jesus, we have to understand that the world doesn't define forgiveness for us. Jesus does. Jesus defines forgiveness by his own actions toward us. It's how we enter into relationship with him. It begins with forgiveness, doesn't it? And so we look at him. We are to forgive in the same manner that we have been forgiven. The promises, Right? That's what, he doesn't hold it against us. He doesn't bring it back up and throw it in our face. He doesn't blab to other people about it. He forgives. But I love what Paul does next. Forgiveness is always accompanied by comfort. Turn and forgive and comfort the man. I commonly hear people say, Christians, they'll say, yeah, yeah, I, I forgive them, but it doesn't mean I have to like them. Or, or I forgive them, but, but I just, I don't want to be around them anymore. I'm glad that's not the way Jesus forgives. He doesn't say that, does he? Yeah, I forgive you, Josh, but I don't want to look at your sorry face ever again. 
That's not the way forgiveness works. It's not forgiveness unless there's comfort that comes. Paul instructs the Corinthians, comfort this man. This same word used in chapter one where he talks about the comfort that we've received and the comfort that we're to share towards others. Remember, God comforts us and we're to comfort repentant sinners in that same way. How do we do that? We welcome them. We openly embrace them. We, we strengthen them. We affirm them. We, we love them. This is the dad in Luke 15. The prodigal, the, the lost son, he had gone away. He was eating the husks, came to his mind for a moment, says, I need to go home. And he, he comes home. And, and where's dad? Dad's looking for him. And without hesitation, he runs and he puts his arm around his neck. Without hesitation, he says, we're throwing a party. Son can't even get the words out of his mouth. That's what we're called to do. When sinners repent, heaven rejoices. And we should too. Paul shows great concern for this man. and I, Man, what a heart of discipleship here. He realizes if, if you Corinthians continue to hold this man, pushing him away, placing judgment on him, not realizing that Christ is forgiven and we're to forgive, his sorrow is going to swallow him whole. Haven't we all been there before? Like we've been in that moment of sin where we were just, oh, we didn't think we would make it through because the grief was so unbearable. Paul says, Corinthians, it's your job. Church, it's your job to embrace them and affirm them and accept them and love them. He instructs them, finally, reaffirm your love. He pleads, reaffirm your love. Tell them you love them. Show them you love them. Get down and bandage up their wounds. Take care of them. Oh. When verse 19 and 11, Paul gives us more reasons. Paul is such a logical person. I love, love his heart here, but then he's like, so let me tell you why I've told you some of these things. And so he gives us this list of reasons. Verse 9, he says, one of the reasons that I've instructed you Corinthians to do this is it was a test. Paul wanted to test the church. And so he, he went to them, he wrote to them and said, you need to remove this man. And so I wrote this to you as a test. And he had left that painful visit and painful letter running. are they going to obey me this time? Because why? There had been plenty of times they had not obeyed him before. And so when Titus shows up, Paul's now in Macedonia. Titus shows up. He's just been at the church of Corinth. He had good news for Paul. And I can imagine Paul's relief when Titus says, they did it. They finally did it. And it worked. And Paul says, yes, you finally passed the test. You finally did. He loves these people. But another reason Paul instructs them to forgive, verse 10, is it, it shows Christ. In verse 10, Paul's clear, I, I've forgiven this man. Paul's not holding any animosity. Paul's forgiven him. Uh, he writes that, that part of the reason, the importance that, that he would forgive the man is for the sake of the Corinthians. Paul wanted to make sure that they understood, I've forgiven him. You should forgive him as well. Because Paul knows what happens if forgiveness isn't shown what 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 grows in its place bitterness there's no neutrality in the christian life don't just slide in well i'm not really going to forgive but i'm not bitter no you're you're becoming more bitter every day if you're not willing to forgive 
And Paul doesn't want that cancer to affect the people that he loves and the church that he loves. And so he's very forthright with him. He also brings in Christ into the conversation. I think because he wrote to the Corinthians this, be kind one to another. He wrote to the Ephesians this, be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Just as Christ, just as you have been forgiven in Christ. When we forgive, it's a testimony to the gospel message. It's a testimony to what difference Christ has made in our lives. And the final reason that he gives for their obedience in restoring the brother, it's so imperative because forgiveness, and I love this point, it outwits Satan. That's what he says there at the end. It outwits Satan. Verse 11, so that, we do this so that we would not be, we would not be outwitted by Satan, but instead outwit him. For we're not ignorant of his schemes, his designs. Satan was working to destroy the church at Corinth. He'd been working ever since its inception. Disunity, disloyalty, that pridemanship. Oh, I follow this guy, I follow that guy. Here's what I believe about marriage. Here's what I believe about marriage. Here's what I believe about the resurrection. Here's what I believe about the resurrection. They had been fighting about everything. Satan was at work. It was driven by disunity and pride. And Satan was winning. That was his plan. I'm gonna bring this thing to the ground. And how many churches has he destroyed through disunity and pride through all of the centuries since the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost? I can think of dozens in my mind now, in my lifetime. But the formula to outwit Satan is the same as it's always been. Jesus outwitted him 2,000 years ago when instead of coming to Jerusalem to fight, what did he do? He laid down his life. Humility outwits Satan every time. It's like he just doesn't see it coming. <laughs> Showing forgiveness and grace and mercy outwits Satan every time. Obedience to Jesus outwits Satan every time. Satan is a scheming liar who's come to steal, kill, and destroy a roaring lion who is seeking whom he may devour. You know, there's a, there's a powerful exchange that happens in Genesis chapter 4. Genesis 3, the fall happens. Adam and Eve removed from the garden. Genesis chapter 4, we're introduced to Cain and Abel, and they offer sacrifices, and, and Cain's is not accepted. Abel's is accepted, and Cain is angry with God, and he's angry with his brother, and he's sitting there, and he's fuming, and God himself comes to Cain and says, Cain, why are you angry? He's asking him some heart-probing questions. What's going on in your heart and mind? And he offers this warning to Cain. Cain's sin is crouching at the door. And its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. It's as if God tells Cain, sin is like a lion just waiting on the other side of that door. And if you give in to it, the lion's won. Cain did not even listen to the counsel of the Almighty God. He walked through the door, he killed his brother Abel, and he was a marked and cursed man for the rest of his life. 
where is sin crouching at your door? Let me ask it this way. Who are you unwilling to forgive? I want you to catalog through your life. Most of you probably don't have to. (laughs) Those people come to mind immediately. Thank God for that. But today, I'm asking you to seriously consider the people who have hurt you, they've sinned against you, that you're unwilling to forgive. And I plead with you today to choose forgiveness. Let me give you some reasons for that. One, because your soul depends on it. If you don't forgive, your soul depends on it because bitterness will eat you alive and it will destroy more than you can even begin to imagine. Because bitterness doesn't just stop, bitterness doesn't just stop with that relationship. Bitterness then begins to creep into every other relationship you have. And I've known some people whose entire lives were consumed by bitterness because of one or two actions that were done to them earlier in their life, and they refused to forgive. And by the end of their life, every bridge was burned and every relationship had been destroyed. Because like a cancer, it just ate through them. I don't want that for you. See Cain. Please look at Cain. Consider why are you angry? Why not forgive? The other, the other point on your soul here is this. God is clear that you will not be forgiven. It, it says in Matthew 6, if you forgive others their trespass, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Those are some damning words, aren't they? What's the point? Forgiven people forgive. That's what the point Jesus is making. If you've truly been forgiven, then you will forgive. The Spirit will prompt you and push you over that cliff if He has to. One of the objections that would immediately come is, well, they haven't asked for forgiveness. Will you forgive in the heart to start? The the, the truth is, it doesn't mean your forgiveness that you offer in your heart doesn't mean the relationship can be everything it it should be, right? Unless they maybe come and they repent and they confess some of their contributions to the brokenness of the relationship, it, it can't be fully satisfied. It can't be fully restored. But I'm telling you, and I'll repeat it again, if you think you can sit in neutral and not already forgive them in your heart. Your truck's rolling back and there's a cliff or a ditch that it's gonna fall off of. Bitterness will grow. If you're following Jesus, I'll also say this. We're called to make the first move. Well, how how can you say that? Because Jesus makes the first move. Because God came to us. God initiated grace and mercy by sending Jesus. 
We're the ones who are called to make that move of humility. Romans 12 gives a, a beautiful synopsis of what this can look like, what it is to live peaceably with all men. Another objection that, that many of us would have is, is they hurt me deeply. Pastor, you don't understand. And that's true. I don't, and maybe, maybe nobody in this room would understand how painful and how injured you are. But forgiveness is willing to absorb the pain. Forgiveness is willing to take the injury, to pay the price for the actions of another person. That's what it does. And we're promised that our Savior will give us the grace to absorb that injury. We're promised that he's big enough to do that. A second reason why it's so important is your unwillingness to forgive will quench the spirit and bring disunity into your life and possibly into the church. Certainly if, if that, that relationship is in this body, you need to deal with it. Not just for your sake and the sake of the other person, but for the sake of the body. We're not going to put up with the, the gossip and the, the, the cliques and the, the, the politics of back and forth. Well, I'm on their team and I'm on their team. No, we're on team Jesus. And, and if you allow that to continue, it's Satan's plan for every church. And do not be a part of it. Do not latch arms with him and say, yep, we're going to burn this thing to the ground. Because I've seen it happen and many of you have too. And we want to be very careful. How do we avoid it? We clothe ourselves in humility. We humble ourselves. We look at the two by four in our eye before we start messing with the specks in others' eyes. And we follow Jesus with faithfulness. The third reason it's so important is the testimony of Christ is compromised. When we're unwilling to forgive, we pervert the gospel that we proclaim. Right? I mean, it's very duplicitous. It's very hypocritical to say, hey, I've been forgiven by Christ. Christ forgives, but I'm not going to forgive you. Perverts the very foundation of our life. But on the opposite side, forgiveness gives us an incredible opportunity to reveal the character of God, doesn't it? People will look into that and say, how, how could you forgive? How couldn't I forgive? You know what my God's done for me? You know how filthy I was? And he made me whiter than snow? I think of that story in Matthew 18 after Jesus gives the, the discipline instruction. He goes into the parable of the man who owed the master, I'll just say $20 million. He owed him a lot of money. The master dragged him in and said, hey, you need to pay this or you're going to prison. can't pay it and he pleaded for mercy and what did the master do he said it's forgiven you don't have to pay any of it you're free to go time goes by not much time according to jesus and that guy who was just forgiven 20 million dollars from the master he goes and finds one of his fellow servants who owes him a couple hundred bucks and he pins him against the wall and says hey you owe me this money you need to pay it to me God says, I can't pay it. He pleads for mercy. And the guy says, no mercy for you. You are going to prison. And he has him thrown into prison for the debt that he owed. 
Well, when the master hears about this, how happy is he? <laughs> He's not happy at all. He drags him in. How could you? How dare you? Receive such mercy and grace and forgiveness from me and then you can't show a small fraction of that to your fellow servant? Who do you think you are? That's the question for us, isn't it? Who do we think we are holding on to our bitterness as if we're owed something? We're not. Maybe you're the offender. Maybe you're the rebel. You've hurt somebody, you said some hurtful things, you manipulated, you did some things. And you need somebody else to forgive you. You need to go to them and you need to say, will you forgive me? You know, the, Matthew 5, Jesus, after the, the Beatitudes, he talks about being angry and how it's not. It's anger in the heart. And then he gives that, that little parenthetical and he says, you know, if, if you come to worship me and you have a problem with another person, go deal with that and then come back and worship Why does he say that? Because, because our worship isn't pure. We're living a hypocritical life. You can't just keep coming back to church and, and singing praise and looking at God's word and praying prayers. You need to deal with the situation in front of you. And if you need to ask forgiveness from somebody, go and deal with it. Humble yourself today. Confess your sin. Why? He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin. What's there to fear? And let's just park there for a moment. We've been forgiven. Rejoice in that. We've been forgiven. Do you realize what's been given to us in Christ? I think we struggle to understand this because we struggle to understand the ugliness of our sin. I think for me, most of the time, it's because I'm pretty good at comparing my sin to other people, right? And I look around the world and I say, well, that's really bad sinner over there. I'm not that bad. So my sin's not that bad. But we go to places like Isaiah 6, and Isaiah wasn't a very bad guy, right? He was a prophet of the Lord, and he, he's there in the throne room. And what's his response when he sees the holiness of God? Woe is me, I'm undone, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Kill me now. I don't even deserve this. You go to like Psalm 51, and you, you read David's repentant prayer, and you, you think, wow. David really recognized in that his sin was treacherous against God and against other people, and he needed cleaned up. But there's one place that uh, the ugliness of our sin is on full display that we need to return to regularly. And that's the cross of Christ. Because when we go there, 
we see the treachery. We hear it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The blood, the anguish, the ugliness of sin and hell are on full display. But here's the thing. We, we don't go to the cross as, as participants so much as we go as bystanders, right? You remember what happened right before the cross? Pilate put in front of him, should I crucify Jesus, the righteous, or should I crucify Barabbas, the murderer? And what did they say? Kill Jesus. We are Barabbas who walks away free and forgiven in the story. I don't know if he watched what took place, but that's us. And every time we look at the cross, that's my story, free and forgiven while he takes the beating and the mockery and getting spit on and the nails and the death and the forsakenness. We walk away free. We're forgiven because Jesus takes our place. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole. It is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. We rejoice. Have you received forgiveness through the sacrifice of Jesus. If you haven't, today is the day. Today is the day to confess your sins because he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Today is the day for you to confess, I need a savior. I can't do this on my own. There's no amount of good works that I can do. There's no amount of church I can attend. I need a savior, someone to stand in my place, and Jesus is the savior that I need. Confess it. Confess it. And if you're here today and you have received the forgiveness of Jesus, rejoice in it. Let it motivate you. Uh, let it lead to worship. In just a moment, we're going to participate in the Lord's Supper where we remember the forgiveness that we have been shown Today we rejoice in a Savior who was crushed for our iniquities. His chastisement brings us peace. His wounds bring us healing. But before we do that, we all need to examine ourselves. And we all need to let the Spirit of God examine us for any bitterness that may be hiding, for any unwillingness to forgive, and now, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to confess it. Today is the day to forgive. As we partake in just a moment of the body and blood of Jesus that makes it possible at all. And so I'm going to ask you now, if you would bow your head. This is a moment for you to examine. And in just a moment, I'm going to give a couple of minutes here. Our men are going to come. They're going to distribute these elements. They're stacked together, so you're going to get a cup on top of a cup. The bread's in the bottom cup, and the juice is in the top cup, so just grab one of those. And we're going to play a song that I think will help us to rejoice in our Savior as those elements are distributed. But for now, if you confess your sins, He's faithful and just 
to forgive your sins. And if you don't have anything to confess and you've got no one to forgive in your heart right now, rejoice. Rejoice in the peace that Christ brings. I'll give you some time.